another Dishcast. This time with someone I've had some communications with in the past and who has been probably embedded in the intellectual framework behind Trump and Trumpism for quite a while. Michael Anton, he probably most famous at this point for writing the Flight 93 essay before the 2016 election, in which he argued that if Trump were not elected, the entire democracy of the United States would be at stake and probably irrecoverable if he were to lose. He's also a lecturer at Hillsdale College in Washington, D.C. He did work for Trump as the communications director for the NSC and is currently a senior fellow at the Claremont Institute and an extraordinary scholar, particularly with respect to Machiavelli, uh, and a natty dresser, which I can't see right now because we couldn't get the videos to work, but I'm certainly nattier than I have ever even attempted no, I, to be. I, I look like hell right now. Oh, I just have on a Hillsdale College t-shirt. <laughs> oh, for shame. Because I'm... I, I've got a lot of, I've got a very heavy course load this semester and many classes to do. And I have to do, speaking of Machiavelli, doing part of book two of the discourses tomorrow and then the first half of the prints on Friday and Saturday. So I'm uh, lots to do. And you wear a t shirt for your students? I thought it was part of your ethic no, to, no, to I'm, constantly wear I'm this sitting, is your, You're I'm now off duty. Home, yeah, I'm sitting at home prepping lectures, but when I go okay. and teach, I will. I will I, I, now that I'm a college professor, I wear a lot of tweed. But you always wore a lot of tweed, right? Is that, well, or is... I mean, I was more of a, you know, in an office environment, I wore worsted suits, worsted right. flannel or flannel suits. I never wore tweed to the, well, I think I wore tweed to the White House one time when I was that same day getting on a plane to go to London for a conference that Peter Thiel was putting on. Do you have Ditchley. a, do you have nice leather, uh, elbows on those on those uh, no that's you know that's that's a kind of affectation i think unless the <laughs> unless it's a jacket that you love so much and the elbows have worn through and you can't bear to throw it out then you put those on <laughs> okay but otherwise you know no i just remember all my oxford professors with that particular outfit anyway that we should get to business here and talk because yeah. we're, it's been a fascinating fascinating few months particularly and you just have a new piece out in the claremont review of books called The Continuing Crisis, The Election and Its Aftermath. So, Michael, let me start with the, the basic question. Do you, do you believe, you seem to imply in this piece, that the 2020 election was fraudulent? Is that I, your position? My position is, is one of, you know, to borrow a phrase, I know that uh, you and I basically studied the same thing, so this phrase will be familiar to you. Uh, of epistemological humility uh, or maybe bewilderment, right? I see all kinds of things that look fishy and I've not really heard explanations. And there's a, an, I, I also detect an unwillingness to provide explanations and a, and a hostility toward anyone who asks questions. So as I try to point out in the piece, for myself, I don't really know what happened in the 2020 election. And I therefore, I can't say for sure that I, I mean, I know Biden won in the sense that he's the president. I don't really have that much doubt that Biden got a higher share of the popular vote than Trump. I think that's you know, so probable as to be almost impossible if it weren't the case. But when you have these small margin, a smaller margin, in, in, um, essentially uh, elected Biden in the key states than, than elected Trump in 2016, without all of these weird irregularities back then. I look at that and I go, I don't know what happened. And I see an unwillingness 
to investigate it and a hostility to anyone who asks questions. And I just think, all right, you know, this is not the way, you know, in, <laughs> purely innocent people behave. That is to say, if something looks funny and you know you didn't do it, I know my reaction is I get indignant and I say, no, no, you're going to listen to me and I'm going to explain to you why I didn't do it. And we're going to, I want a thorough, I want a thorough recounting so that I, I'm let off the hook. And I don't sense that from the, uh, the you know, the pro-Democrat, pro-Biden side. I sense the opposite. Well, of course, there were many lawsuits filed, uh, as is a loser's right and prerogative to challenge various issues in various uh, states, as is always the case. And there's always some issues, smaller issues that can be challenged. And the Trump campaign did uh, try and challenge that in court and failed every single time to prove their point. The only other structural question would be if the voting machines were somehow rigged. And we are going to have court cases now in which the accusations of being rigged will be, will be put through the system, in which people will have to defend the accusation that the Dominion or, or these other uh, voting machine manufacturers deliberately rigged it so that their favored candidate would apparently win. Who, right. who, who, would, who would be those people who were rigging this systematically behind the well, scenes. Well, let's, let, let's step back. I, of course, you're right. The Trump campaign filed a number of lawsuits and lost. If, if my latest piece, though, I think tries to demonstrate that they were not prepared for this. They were not prepared for what was coming at them, even though this, uh, the, the, the difficulties and irregularities and fishiness of the 2016 or the 2020 election, sorry, started to be telegraphed in the mainstream media and among Democratic politicians and intellectuals and such months and months before the votes were cast. And let's just be honest, I'll be a little bit blunt, right? A more competent administration or, and campaign would have said sometime around March or April, or I don't know when, of 2020, golly, this could be a very kind of hairy experience for us the day or two or the week after the election. Let's start preparing now. And they, and they did that. prepare. They, they told people that not to ignore voting after the night of the election because it was going to be rigged, that you should take whatever happened on that day. In fact, the president, former president, urged that the counting be stopped on election night, even before everything had been counted. So they were prepared for it. In fact, they, well, they no, themselves I, come I, up I with a, an argument that, in fact, they were going to win, but that there would be subsequently, because of the mail-in balloting question, which is a function of COVID, of course, uh, there would be a weird shift between people who voted on the day and who, who were encouraged to do so by the Republicans and those who voted in advance who were encouraged to do so by the Democrats. And so that was always going argue, to be, there was always going to be some kind of discrepancy between those two blocks of vote, right? I, I would argue they were not, they did not prepare. They did not assemble a team. I mean, think back to, I make this comparison. If we think back to Florida 2000, I remember election night very well. I went to bed at 1 a.m. or whatever thinking, okay, it's going to be a Republican. It's going to be George Bush. And I woke up and it was disputed. And neither candidate nor campaign saw that coming. And But they both very quickly assembled top-notch teams of voting experts, lawyers, and so on to litigate it. Um, the Trump campaign and administration had six to nine months to see a disputed outcome coming. And it did not assemble in advance the team. It didn't strategize. It didn't do the things that it needed to do. It made the public arguments that you're saying, suggesting. But that's, you know... That's just talk. That's not action. You could say, well, this is the way we see it going down. But unless you're really prepared to fight a, uh, uh, in, a, in a thorough way, in a competent way, 
the talk will amount to nothing. And that seems to me to be what at a minimum happened. Can you name an election in modern times which Donald Trump has not believed was rigged? <laughs> well, I don't know his opinion on every well, single I can, election. Well, you can look it up. I would assume 2016 he thought was not rigged. Although no, he did. Made, he insisted it was he rigged. He made noises about the popular vote. No, so he on, didn't. Which, he said uh, it yeah. was rigged and that millions, millions of people voted illegally in the 2016 election. Yeah. So why well, should we believe I mean, him now? What I mean by rigged in that sense, it, since the outcome proved to his favor, he's probably less concerned. Well, no, but he wasn't. The, but, That's the strange thing, uh, that he continued to insist. He couldn't bear the idea that he might have actually lost uh, the popular vote to Hillary Clinton. And so continually insisted for four years that he that that election was rigged. I mean, how do you deal with a person that behaves with that level of irrationality? Well, lots and lots of people do vote illegally in this country. This does happen. Um, now, I don't know if it was millions in 2016 or oh, yes, hundreds of do. thousands or whatever, but we have, do. we have a kind of ridiculously loose voting system by design. And that's one of the shifting arguments about 2020 was, you know, well, there was no fraud. Oh, well, maybe there was some. There always is. Come on, grow up. We all know this. But it didn't affect the outcome. Didn't affect the I, outcome I in any we, case. Do you believe that the, that, that the Diebold we machines that. in Ohio in 2004 were also rigged? I mean, you could, I, you I, could play this out forever, right? You could, you could say that you can't prove it, but you somehow feel. I mean, that's what the, pre, the former president said today. He said that he felt he, he was, it was rigged. And Rush Limbaugh, uh, may he rest in peace, also uh, insisted that he felt that it was stolen. Well, he, how can you run a democracy when people don't just base their decisions on whether they feel that an election has been rigged or not? Can you name a single other modern Western democracy in which such a controversy has existed? A single other head of state who has lost an election who has continued to deny it? In fact, to insist that he won by a landslide? Is there any other you, precedent for this in the history? Can you name a single other alleged Western democracy that has a voting system as porous and sloppy and inconsistent as ours, that has been made more so on all counts uh, consistently over the last 15, 20, or 30 years? But you I say can. that, but, but there's no evidence of systemic fraud in the electoral system in this country. There isn't. There's and, evidence. And there's been no, no ability to prove it. Uh, well, evidence is something that you obviously is valid. It's not just hearsay or my feeling or the obviously and, and the scope of the rigging that, that Trump believes. I mean, he believes that he won in a landslide. He keeps saying that. And that was the, the belief that led to the, uh, the assault on the Capitol on the day that the results were going to be certified by the Congress. Uh, how I mean. This person is clearly not in touch with reality, right? I mean, you, you must acknowledge that he is and has been delusional about many, many things over the last several years. To me, the, 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 the key delusion, I say this in my piece that you touch on, uh, you know, with, your, with regard to the events of January 6th, was that uh, some number of millions of people, I don't know how many, believed that the outcome that was uh, more or less settled in the in the public narrative, let's say by the Friday or Saturday after the election, would somehow be as a matter of fact overturned. Right? There were people as late. Why as did January they believe 6th, that? There were people as late. As, well, for a lot of reasons, various online conspiracy theories. The and 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 to some extent, the president. Look, I, I'm not. I won't go so far as to say that the former president said this would happen. 
he was always cagey in his rhetoric, but he certainly said things that encouraged that belief in a in a way that always left him a kind of escape hatch. But that rhetoric was, you know, what was a, the escape hatch? Imprudent and unhelpful. Ultimately, the uh, unhelpful to himself. But what about the system as a whole? How does a system survive when its president denies its own validity, denies the validity of the entire electoral system of the well, system? This is itself. where you and I just see the system in, in an entirely different way. I think the system is going to do fine. It's just a completely different system than the one your comment presupposes. How is it a different system? How the is system this, got the how is it got the outcome it wanted? It got the outcome it wanted, and so it doesn't want to investigate or look into this kind of thing. But they they it did investigate, and secondly, they are going to be there's going to be major discovery in the libel suits against those claiming that these uh, these polling companies, these polling machine companies, were deliberately rigging it if for some way or another. One would think that. So we'll find that out, right? To my way of looking, I don't think we're going to find out anything necessarily from the libel suits, but in any event, to my way of looking at it, as I say, from a position of epistemological humility, since I don't know anything, uh, I always found the machine rigging allegation to be the least credible. And you Well, know, then as the, I said, others, the others are so trivial as to make no difference at all to the result. No, not clear. Not clear unless you really and truly investigate all of them, uh, very little of which was done. I, we're never, look, uh, the point is, if either you or anyone else or the system or the people who speak for it need Mike Anton to believe something in particular about the 2020 election, you're not going to be able to make me unless but I will the, point these out kinds of that, investigations have, are done. And but there I, was no I epistemological shoes, humility. I would just not care what I think. Like, just write me off as a kook and say, OK, you, I guess you're a nut because you don't believe. Well, well I, I don't, don't believe. I don't believe you're a nut. Uh, I don't. Or a kook. Uh, I think you're you're just... Uh, uh, defending something that is indefensible. Um, I, 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 I do think that it is an act of public recklessness and, uh, for leading members of our society without any proof to assert categorically, as the president did, that he had lost in a landslide, that his victory had been stolen, that there was a cabal who had managed to somehow rig it that this was obvious and that he's still saying today, today, uh, that he won in a landslide. Now, how can a democratic system operate when the losers refuse to acknowledge the validity of their loss? How can a democratic system operate when the, the, the rules and structures for voting are, are so loosey-goosey and susceptible to corruption that the side who does lose can't really ever know what, Whether it won what is, or lost, what is Lucy Goosey? I mean, when, 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 what previous elections have we had this debate about? This no one, one's ever this, doubted. This one it only quite, became Lucy Goosey this year, apparently, when no, uh, when Donald no, Trump been, was. Uh, not, there's been decades of loosening the rules around voter IDs and same day registration, and you name it, and the mail in uh, tsunami of 2020, also ballot harvesting, all kinds of things. The mail-in tsunami was definitely the biggest single change ever made at one stroke, ad uno trato, as our friend Nicolo would say, uh, in, in, in the course of one election cycle. But it's, it's not, none of this is calculated to give confidence to people outside the system looking at it, that the thing is legitimate and fair and, uh, you know, every vote, is valid and cast by an eligible person and so on. It's not calculated to do that. It doesn't do that. It certainly doesn't do that to me. If you want my assent to it. Which elections you know, do, like, do you really doubt? Do you doubt all the elections of the results of, in this country? 
in, in your lifetime? Because it's been the same system, no. basically. No, I think it's gotten worse over my lifetime, culminating in 2020, How do you prove which that? is probably How do you the sloppiest. I've, well, all, the things I just mentioned, that uh, throughout the course of my lifetime, in the name of rights broadly understood, um, election laws and procedures have continually been loosened on the grounds that any kind of strictness, any kind of due diligence to make sure that only eligible people are voting and so on, somehow impinges upon somebody's right somewhere and they're evil and they can't happen. And so we've got to make this as absolutely as easy as possible. And making it as easy as possible means making it susceptible to fraud in ways that cast doubt on the legitimacy of, of the outcomes. So when and the, when, argument that when the president proved, of the United... I agree it can't be proved, but that's part of the virtue of the system. If this is the system that one wants, hey, it can't be proved. So we can just say to anybody who objects, you can't prove it. Therefore, we don't have to listen to you. And you're crazy. And you so know, there's no legitimacy. There's no legitimacy in our democracy at this point. It's just random. It's just all a bunch of cabals deciding who's going to be president and the voting is irrelevant. Is that what you're saying? That we, um, there's no need no, to I, vote? There's probably, there's probably voting that actually takes place that's for real at the state and local level. And, but look, there, there, are a lot, there are certainly... Michael, come it's, on. It's, it's hard to think of. Try to think back to a time. I can think of maybe one example. It was a, a, an odd, you know, I think it was a state level race in North Carolina where um, an election comes down. Oh, well, and, and of course, Bush versus Gore, an election comes down to the wire and it's really super close and it goes into the sort of recount litigation phase. How often do Republicans win those? One percent of the time. Well, they certainly won it in the most. The <laughs> certainly, they won it in the most important point in when that came into into force, which was 2000, where, where Bush uh, did win. And the Supreme Court eventually ceded it to him. I, I, I just and, and I also remember that the Trump also set up a commission to find fraud, evidence of fraud, and it couldn't do it. And it had to shut down because there was no evidence of this. I mean, it seems not, to me no, that that's not really why it shut down, because it found no evidence. It was it was more because it was a kind of typical look, I. This will disappoint you. I have hesitated to <laughs> criticize the president or my former colleagues, not because I don't think that they did anything. Uh, you know, they made no mistakes or anything like that. But I just it's, it's almost a point of loyalty and gratitude. Like, I hate those kinds of people who go into a White House or wherever, spend a, a year and come out and then just dish and say everybody was a moron. And if only they had listened to me, everything would have come out perfectly. But they. You know, so I, I try not to do that. And, and, and I pay a price for that in the sense that people then say, well, you're just a toady and you must be a complete bootlicker who agrees with everything. Well, all right, fine. I'd rather I'd rather have that said about me than that I'm an ungrateful backstabber. All well, of that OK, is OK. I would I prefer of, you just to just to actually not worry about what people say about you and say what you think. Well, I, I just think that it's it wasn't that I, I was around peripherally for the voting commission or whatever it was, the electoral fraud commission. And the thing didn't disband for lack of evidence. It disbanded. It was kind of a typical uh, administration reason. It wasn't very well executed. And it got also got no cooperation from various state and other authorities it would have needed cooperation from if it were going to investigate and find anything. And the thing turned out after a little while, everyone realized it was futile and it just went away. Uh, well, that's one interpretation of what happened. There are, there are plenty of others, but obviously with epistemological humility in every single case of ballots, it'd be impossible to have a binding election, it seems to me, if you're doubting everything all the time, and even to the extent that there's some kind of conspiracy in these companies which whose 
future depends on their reliability, one would think. That's part of their uh, credibility as a voting machine company. Um, well, I, I don't understand what would be the motive in rigging it this way for, for, for an election company. I mean, they, they have as much need for support from Republicans as from Democrats. Why would they do such a thing? And who would do such I, listen, a thing? Listen, I, I already said that part of it is the one I find the least credible. As well, then, I, as I said in well, my then piece, there is was, no dispute. And, because and that was an that's extraordinary the only... claim that demands extraordinary evidence and no extraordinary evidence. I'll concede on that one. Okay. I didn't see any evidence of that. Good. Good. Right. Uh, absolutely. We're in now, agreement because the other, the other little there, things there clearly didn't make a difference in the result of the election. It, it clearly did not. That I that I'm not that I'm not convinced by. OK, well, I, <laughs> I wonders one wonders what level of evidence would convince you. But anyway, obviously, we can't prove a negative. You can't. Uh, do you think it's responsible? Let me for can, a I, just, can like, I ask you whether it's responsible? Ask, why does Go on. Ask me. Why does it matter what I think? I'm just I'm just I'm just I'm just a college professor teaching the great books. And so what if Mike Anton from his academic perch where he reads Thucydides and all day doesn't claims that he doesn't really know who won the 2020 election? I don't matter. Well, you matter enough that I'm talking with you and we're trying to have a conversation. So just from my point of view, I'm curious as to why someone as smart and as able as you would continue to insist on something that I feel is empirically invalid. That's all. I mean, obviously, neither you nor I matter in the grand scheme of things. I'm not insisting on it. Okay. I'm not insisting on it. I've completely moved on. Look, I I wrote, I I, I write for this Claremont Review of Books, which I've been uh, uh, affiliated with for for. 25 years. They asked for a piece on the election. I wrote a piece on the election in December that was fully edited and ready to go. When January 6th happened, right. uh, I had a discussion with the editor. We both agreed that the piece had to be revised and substantially rewritten to reflect January 6th. And I did that. And okay, okay. you know, I put in into that piece, not in a systematic way, because I don't consider myself any kind of expert on what happened in the election. I mentioned a couple of articles that I said, if you want to see, to me, the clearest and most convincing summaries of the doubts, go read here. Stated my own opinion, but the balance of the piece is actually more about the mistakes that the president and his team made throughout 2020 and after the election that led to January 6th, and then and about the future. So this is what not something that, okay, to well, be honest, what, really preoccupies me. Okay. I'm only talking about it now because you because you ask. Well, I worry because I believe in democracy, and I think if it's fundamentally delegitimized, it has a huge impact upon the viability of our democracy, and and that's why I care about it. Um, because I don't want to see the entire well, system delegitimized by rumor and uh and conspiracy theory. And I, I do think that's important, especially when the most authoritative person in the country. The president himself insisted that he had won in a landslide. Uh, now that well, again, that okay, is a just a del- First of all, that's delusional, he's not right? The most authoritative person in the country, right? I'm, he, ha- he is Trump. He, is who not, is more, certainly not. Who now. has more literal authority, as it were, under the Constitution than the president? He certainly, you would admit, an extremely important figure in the discourse. I mean, it's his election. He claims yes, he lost okay. it in a landslide. Now, well, let me ask you this: Is it Faintly conceivable that Donald Trump won in a landslide. You mean a, a popular vote landslide? Popular, yeah. That's what he. That's what he meant. I I personally find that nearly impossible to believe. Yeah. I think. The, what do you that, think that of a person that would say such a thing? 
someone whose mental state is so decayed that he thinks that he can say something that crazy. I would ask, what? why would you ask such a thing, having watched Trump's exaggerations and boasts uh, over the course of the last five years? How well, could I, you possibly be surprised? I'm not surprised. Say- I've thought he's mentally unwell for a very long time. And I think the only explanation for his ability to say these things is because he believes them, and he believes them because he's psychologically disturbed at some deep level and should never have been allowed anywhere near a public, uh, wow. a, a, a post of public responsibility or accountability. But anyway, I, 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 having no such psychological training, I cannot say whether or not he is psychologically disturbed. But I did spend about fourteen months around him and did not detect any such thing. I did, however, detect what everyone sees in him publicly—a very high self-regard, a kind of bombasticness, a boastfulness. You know that it is a, a fairly common human type. I mean. There are ancient comedies from Aristophanes to Plautus that use this as a stock character, the the braggart soldier type. Um, it's not like we've never seen such a person before. I think the question of degree is important here. I mean, I've never, I honestly, I'm, I'm be honest with you, I've never come across a person who literally cannot relate empirical reality in any conceivable respect. I mean, as someone who insists that he's that, that you have to believe him over your lying eyes is is quite rare when the, the, your eyes are right in front of you when you can look for example on day 1 at the various inauguration crowds of obama you can see and he insisted that we believe something that was untrue um and i always find that a very weird but anyway Let's move on from this to talk about Trump in general and what's happened in the last four years and what may be happening in the next four years. Um, what do you think, because you mentioned in the piece of Trump's achievements. So tell me what you think those achievements have been and were. Well, look, he, he, his achievements are, are, are mixed and incomplete, even on, by the standards of a first term. I think that's due in, overwhelmingly to internal, external, really the total opposition of every power center in society, except arguably one third of his White House that was on his side. Everything else was against him. And also to the, you know, what I think I charitably described as subcompetence of, of elements of the administration before, um, mm-hmm. you know, that just it turns out in the final analysis, look, that uh, one of the things that many people said, including I, I knew, you know, the presidency is not an entry-level job. Having never been in electoral politics before, it's going to be hard to govern, especially when you're governing against the system, against the consensus. And it turns out that that was true. And lots of things that might otherwise have gotten done didn't get done in part because of that. I, I, but, but I still think that's a minority cause that, that had, you know, let's say you can imagine you could build a sort of presidential candidate in speech who has 30 years experience in electoral politics, has been a governor, knows everybody, knows how all the levers of power work, is a, the greatest bureaucratic infighter of all time, but put him into the White House in 2017 with Trump's agenda, the world is still going to line up against him and make it really hard to get stuff done. And probably he would have had that, that imaginary president would have had a, a better first term, but you know, it, it would have still been really hard. So as to actual accomplishments, I think he really did make some progress on immigration. All of that's going to be given away now. Well, um, isn't that the point that he could have actually gotten a real legislative achievement if that it was on the table for him, but he walked away from it? 
Uh, well, he could have got full funding of his own border wall if he had compromised a little bit on DACA. I, doubt I mean, that. That, that in the first. I doubt that. Okay. I don't think he, he could have gotten it. I think that was too important to his opponents that not to give him something on that. To me, but the they big basically did, is, didn't they? I mean, that, they basically did. was right about the following: start with don't don't start with the traditional GOP, um, you know, repeal Obamacare and then tax cuts. Start with infrastructure. So why didn't he? And see, if, I I think he didn't because he got talked out of it by. And this is you know. You have to place this at the feet of Trump himself and no one else. He let himself get talked out of it by Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell and by others within his own administration. This is what I don't understand. If he really did believe that he was elected to, for example, curtail immigration sharply and uh, curtail illegal immigration, rather, uh, sharply, uh, build the wall, turn towards a protectionist foreign policy and withdraw us from various troubled spots, which when I look back at him, I think, those are the, some of the key keynotes that he won the election on. As soon as he wins the election, he just drops it entirely, all of it. No, that's not true. He, uh, in a way, you could say it's worse than that. He never dropped it entirely, but he would wax enthusiastic about it and then pull back and do some other things and so on. But look, one of the things that I witnessed firsthand is Trump is, that I think people give him no credit for, is he's persuadable. So he would have an idea. I want to do X. And he would listen to people around him and they would say, Mr. President, we don't think this is a good idea and you shouldn't because of Y and Z and these other factors. And he let himself get talked out of things all the time, sometimes for better, but sometimes for ill. And sometimes he would let himself get talked out of something and but not have his heart in it and still want to do what he originally wanted to do and then consistently come back to it. So that's why this this administration was in part kind of a roller coaster where Trump would wax Trumpian for a time and then he would seem like uh, you know, a, a, a standard issue Chamber of Commerce Republican from 1985, and then he would be Trump again. And I just know, don't see any of the substantive. Kind of I just don't see any substantive achievements on what he called his agenda. Um, I mean, if you take the wall, for example, which was probably one of the most important parts mm-hmm. of his campaign. It's absolutely risible what he got done. I mean, it was absolutely pathetic. And he didn't get anyone else to pay for it. And in fact, he didn't even get the Congress to pay for it. He had to actually uh, create and announce a fake national emergency to move congressional funds from one place to another against the Constitution. Uh, So that's how incompetent he was. I mean, that's how bad it was. He couldn't even get his signature proposal his, sig- his signature proposal is opposed by every powerful power center commanding height in this society, in and out of government. He Everybody. had both houses of Congress. He had a court yeah. that wouldn't have struck it down. And uh, he decided he couldn't give a shit, really, and didn't do it. No, I, I, I just don't see it that way at all. First of all, he had both houses of Congress only nominally run by a party that doesn't want the wall, that is in hock to its business interests, that don't want the wall, that don't want any kind of immigration restriction or employment enforcement at all, and that undermined him at every turn and tried to constantly take his attention away from it. Now, again, it's on him that he didn't just stand up to them and say, no, this is what I ran on. This is what I want to do. I'm I'm going to uh, you're either going to come along with me or I'm going to run against you while I am president the same way I ran against you when I was a candidate. He didn't do that. He thought, all right, I'm here now. It's time to govern. Um, you know, I'm sure Paul and Mitch are, you know, have my best interests at heart or something or we can make a deal. And do you think anyone 
anyone in you public life has had Congress in the sense that he had a majority in Congress that was willing to go along with his immigration agenda. And he's the one who flubbed it. He may have flubbed it, too, but in part because Congress was absolutely unwilling to go along with his immigration agenda. It's it's just he a, didn't fight them. <laughs> um, it's 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 just remarkable to me that he wouldn't fight them. And, and the other, con, you know, the the other, if you are in favor of immigration reform, if you are in favor of controlling illegal immigration, of restricting legal immigration in the future, if you have that kind of argument, has any figure in public life discredited that position more than Donald J. Trump in the in the in the eyes and minds of the majority of people in this country? I don't think I, I don't see it that way at all. I think the people who uh, hate him over his immigration stance all never believed in that stance in the first place. Donald Trump is the is the, to the contrary. Immigration has been a priority for a pretty big subset of voters, uh, many lots of Republicans and even a non-trivial number of Democrats from a sort of union side that no politician or fr only fringe politicians who didn't get anywhere spoke to. And he came along, you know, it was the proverbial um, $100 bill along on the sidewalk. And, and he picked up that yes. nobody else picked up. And stigmatized it forever by his rhetoric, well, by, his, by the cruelty of some of the policies that he expanded, uh, by the, the viciousness of his rhetoric. I mean, I mean, what we've seen is a shift in public opinion under Trump way to be more pro-immigration and anti-control of immigration. That may, that may change. But if I look substantively, he got almost nothing substantively passed, and he also stigmatized the whole concept and argument for reducing well, legal yes, immigration and illegal. He got nothing substantively passed because no Congress, not even a Republican Congress, was ever going to give him what he wanted legislatively on immigration or any part of it. I, I'm not aware of polling that shows that he uniquely stigmatized the issue or that the American people have somehow become a lot more um, pro-immigration. But if you've seen stuff that I haven't seen, I'll take a look. I know what's going to happen, though. We have an administration in power now that's going to reverse everything Trump was trying to do and put in place probably the laxest immigration regime uh, in well over a century. Which and is, we'll see how that how well that um, goes over in the court of public opinion. I I'm I have to understand, as you probably do, I'm not hostile to the basic argument about the policy. I've become more persuaded by it over time. But uh, to channel Ann Coulter, you know, there is no one that makes her angrier than Trump on this question because of the way he let everybody down, in which he just obviously didn't care about fulfilling that promise, certainly not care enough to make sure that it got in any way yeah. moved forward. And also someone like Stephen Miller refused to accept a half, half a loaf uh, I, I, and I just, then I, try I, to I change the Trump debate. I don't didn't care. I don't, I don't believe that he didn't care. But he made, a, you know... I, so let's talk about trade. Do you made. think he made any big he difference the on the question? Of, he had the opposition of basically the entire country, uh, of the power centers against him. And that alone would have made getting anything that he wanted done, done very difficult. And then to compound that, he made a number of mistakes, some of which we talked about. Um, absent the mistakes, I think it still would have been really hard to get what he wanted done done. I'd like to have seen more. I'd like to have seen more wall. I'd like to see domestic employment enforcement that make sure that people, only people who are legally entitled to work in the United States can work in the United States so that they're not taking jobs from but people again, legally if you look entitled at the, to work. If you look at the polling on something like mandatory, mandatory E-Verify, um, which is what that means, really. It's, it's a way in which the law 
means that an employer has to prove that everyone he's employing right. is legally in the country. Um, that has very high support. Um, it's it's a it's a pretty low hanging fruit, right. and but, but not he, in Congress. It doesn't. But Do you he, think Paul Ryan ever wanted it, or or Mitch McConnell, or the U.S. Chamber of sure, Commerce, or I'm any of those gonna, guys. Th- but, Presidents are supposed that's the the responsibility of a president is to overcome those things. Every president has that to overcome. Um, uh, there was huge resistance, for example, to Obamacare, but Obama managed somehow to grind it out through uh, through competence and diligence and a public uh, campaign, uh, even though he was strongly resisted from all sorts of quarters. I just I just want to put a line down that Trump, even if you agreed with him, failed to make any substantial progress on any of the issues that he ran on. So let's let me ask you where he did succeed. I wouldn't, where you go, think I wouldn't he succeeded. go that far. To me, he failed if your if your metric is, you know, fulfill all of your promises from the 2016 campaign. Well, okay, he failed. Well, any of them? Nobody fulfills all of their promises. Any of them? Uh, he did make substantial progress. Okay, More tell wall me where. was built under him than was built before that. They, you know, if border crossings went down, there's a lot of things that happened in the immigration front that moved the issue in his direction. Now, to, to my way of thinking, right, uh, I would have liked more and not less. So I, I understand where somebody like Ann Coulter is coming from, but maybe I'm more pessimistic than she is. I think doing any kind of reform in the system is so hard that I'll take almost any type of progress that I can get. Whereas, well, where else did know, he succeed in your – what other places in his – in any other planks of his platform in, in 2016 that you think he actually got done? Well, I mean, the first one is simply a negative, but not not therefore inconsiderable. He didn't start a new war. That's helpful. Um, he did do troop drawdowns and lessened our commitments overseas it, to some degree. He did uh, really scare NATO allies into uh, ponying up more on, in their own defense and contributing more to the alliance. He did fundamentally, I think, reimagine the U- USA's relationship with China. Probably, you know, you could argue too little too late. But I don't think you'd hear somebody like Joe Biden even talking is tough on China. I, I, I expect no substance to come from that. Let me make clear. But even talking is tough on China as he is today. Had not Trump completely changed the conversation and made the Biden administration feel that that was necessary, uh, a necessary uh, sop to public opinion, if nothing else. And he made he did make headway on trade. Uh, you know, not enough. Sure. And I, I don't know what could be done, though, uh, to turn everything around in four years, given that we've had a trading regime that hasn't really served the U.S. economy or society well, aside from certain commanding heights, for 30 years. Um, and and I, you could bet all of that is going to be reversed. The China stuff, maybe not, but most of the rest will be reversed. So some marginal tinkering in trade with the USMCA. Is that is that is that what we call it now? The re, yeah. redefined uh, NAFTA, and a little bit of change of attitude towards China. Um, no, but so no, look, look, I, you, I, um, I don't know that I would call the renegotiation of NAFTA marginal, or the renegotiation of Chorus, or some of the other trade. But deals. no one really believes uh, they were hugely changed. They were they were tweaked. Well, I maybe think for the better. I mean, more. I think most people say for the better. So I mean, yeah, but it's but compared to what he was really talking about, the reversal. Of, uh, manu- of manufacturing decline, which has continued to decline, uh, the restoration of fossil fuels as a main force of our economy, for God knows what reason, uh, that also has, has failed, clearly. Um, well, I, I don't know what you mean by, okay, so first of all, from the numbers, you say you've seen numbers that show that immigration um, 
pro-immigration sentiment has risen. I haven't. I have seen numbers, though, that say that uh, manufacturing did extremely well. American manufacturing did extremely well under the four years of the Trump administration. Now, if we're going to define extremely well as went right back to 19, you know, the strength of 1950 manufacturing economy, then, well, of course, no, he didn't get there. Well, but fewer jobs now than there were before. At least temporarily reversed the trend. There, and more, more, fewer jobs in manufacturing today than there was when he took office. Okay. I, I don't know what you're looking at. I've seen things that say that that's not true, that, that are, there are more, and there are more companies that had been expanding overseas decided to instead um, invest in the U.S. Now, some of that may not be due to Trump. Some of that is just that when uh, company countries where it is attractive to outsource your factories and labor, when their labor costs get to a certain point, the attractiveness goes away and you think, well, what the hell? Uh, if it's not going to save me any money, there's a, even, or if, you, if it's only going to save me a marginal amount of money, I'm better off just doing this at home, even if it costs a little more. But some of it, from what I've heard, understood, and read, is, is owing to Trump. Uh, we, I, 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 I don't doubt that some of that is true. Um, uh, and I do see a shift elsewhere towards a more skepticism, and it's been heightened under COVID, obviously, of having supply chains that are all over the globe and can't be relied upon in moments of, of crisis and the abandonment of one's own industrial base. I think there has been a shift. I do think Trump contributed to that shift, but I don't think he was the only factor. I think there have been other obvious indicators, pr primarily the collapse of of so much of the working class of this country. Um, and they did do better. I mean, that's the one thing I will say. By borrowing a trillion dollars and throwing it into the economy, which was already in a boom, he did uh, engage in a massive Keynesian experiment, really, in pumping borrowed money into a thriving economy. And he did. Uh, he did manage to reduce unemployment that way. Uh, whether the consequence of that long term to our indebtedness uh, and to possible future inflation, uh, we won't, we'll, we'll, we'll find out at some point. And certainly on top of Biden's massive well, we stimulus. We, listen, I, it, it may be fair to blame Trump for not, uh, for, for going along with a debt party that the United States has been throwing for itself since around 1965. But to credit or blame him for it alone or above all, I think is risable. I mean, this is not some, this is something a situation he found and may you, you know have lacked the courage or interest to um, uh, confront. Uh, but, but he made it hardly surprising though, given it, that he got given that given that he got the bulk of his votes precisely from a kind of forgotten flyover working and middle class that is is to say the least utterly uninterested in the kind of green eye shade entitlement reform that the Republican Party used to sell them right. Mm -hmm. Look, Trump is damned if he does and damned if he doesn't. If he tr tries to go after entitlements, the the left and the Democrats will call him heartless and trying to destroy the the lives of the poor and the, and the working class and so on. And he loses his base, who are uh, Republicans who are turned off by you know the Paul Ryan-esque Republican attacks on on entitlements that have been going on for the last twenty years. And then, but then if he declines to go after entitlements and this kind of thing. Um, uh, he's, you know, accused of being the guy who broke the U.S. budget when, in fact, he's one of about in the line of, I don't know, let's say six, seven, eight presidents who have destroyed the United States finances. So and, and for which I think he deserves the least amount of blame, if only if for no other reason, just because he was the last. Well, I would say more blame because 
He didn't have a recession. He didn't need to uh, add any stimulus to the economy. And that he directed this huge giveaway to the very wealthy uh, with minimal amounts of relief for the middle and working classes compared to the amount of money he shoveled towards his billionaire friend. Yes, the tax cut. Um, uh, yeah. Which added a trillion well, dollars you know, to that the, and the supercharged. Tax, the tax cut is a. Go on. Tax, the tax cut is another great example to me of the complete bankruptcy of the modern Republican Party that I wish Trump had stood up to. Um, what 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 delivers that tax cut is the failure. First of all, the he declines to um, do infrastructure like I think he should have. The failure of the Obamacare repeal, which. You know, I, I assume you could say deserve to fail because at least since the Republicans didn't have a particularly great alternative. And then they turn to the one thing that can possibly unify the caucus. And lo and behold, what is that? It's another tax cut as if it's still 1981 and the top marginal rate. Is I agree with you. And so I agree on. with now, you, Michael. There were some good things in that tax cut that, that, that needed to be done. But I think a more modest reform that took care of some of the technocratic fixes that the tax cut code needed would have been on a policy level a lot more. You know, a lot better for the country than what they did. What they did was a kind of, and I forgot who said this. So if somebody hears it, me say it and remembers, and I, I admit and I'm taking, I'm borrowing a line. I just don't remember from whom, but somebody said it was like, it was like the last gasp of a dying ideology, that tax cut. Yeah. Maybe the last sort of, the last uh, light of pure Reaganism that you ever see out of the Republican Party, which, you know, doesn't know how to do anything else. As far and as yet it remains the only real, apart from the judges, obviously, it remains the only substantive policy shift uh, that lasted um, for Trump. So he, he, may, he may have been. Well, I still gasp. don't agree with that entirely. Um, <laughs> yes. Look, he, look at, at the end of the day, look, when, Trump's, when an assessment of Trump is finally written by somebody like me who is sympathetic, like I, that is to say, not a not not just an out and out critic or hater. One of the things we will have to reckon with is that Trump governed a, a heck of a lot more like a traditional, old fashioned, conventional Republican than we wanted him to, expected him to, and then the country needed. And that's that's on him. That's on the ledger, and it's a negative. Uh, let's talk about the culture a little bit, because obviously, um, I don't think Trump was elected on economics. He was elected on other deeper cultural questions, the future of the nature of America, its demographic mix, its cultural and social values. Um, would you agree with that? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I do think trade, immigration, and war propelled him mm -hmm. as issues, but I also think his you know, combativeness, his willingness to stand up to political correctness uh he you know I, I can remember watching the night of the new hampshire primary uh, him give you know one of his his victory speeches went on and on and on and he talked at great length about opioids a, a thing that i was i kind of knew was a problem but you know in my upper middle class bubble had not come in contact with and i thought well, why is this and i know as i watched i could tell it was really resonating with this crowd in new hampshire really resonating well new hampshire in particular and, and, yeah and I, I realized well you know however out of touch i am this is clearly real and these people are, are 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 moved by this so this must be a big problem there were things like that that he talked about in the culture that nobody else did and i think that really helped connect him with with his base yeah but what was the upshot of that? We, we, we don't know yet. And obviously, 
COVID has thrown everything uh, into out of whack. But do I think he shifted the 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 well-being and self-confidence of of people in the middle of the country who were struggling to make ends meet? Uh, no, I think in fact he replaced that substantive attempt to meet their needs with a personality cult in which he simply represented their attitude. And that that attitude was also represented in the crudest, nastiest, vilest way possible um, in demonization of others and in his constant, constant, massive lies about everything, uh, which obviously have been documented ad nauseum. We don't have to go through them. But do you think it matters that a president will just make shit up every day uh, and, and repeat things that have been demonstrated to be untrue? Is, is that not a threat to any functioning democracy when you cannot believe a word this person says? But that's, look, I, 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 you're stating this. It's so, what you, the way you say it is so overstated. Trump was the most bombastic, without question, the most bombastic president we've ever had. But, Liar. You know, po politicians going back to the very first political book one can dig out of a library are known to be, are known to lie. Okay. And Trump does it in a way so, you know, this is the Selena Zito point, right? He does it in a way so transparent. It's hard to even call it a lie. If I were to say to you, you know, Andrew, um, my mother was an elephant and my father was a giraffe. Uh, you'd say, uh, okay, like, I'm not trying to deceive you. I'm just spinning yarns. And, and look, the, the, I would the ask myself, me, who, who's the kind of, if I came across someone like that, which is like Trump, you're right. I would say to myself, is this person sane? He's saying his look, mother is an elephant. Why is what he you saying said about and the then personality when, cult? <laughs> I, I don't I wouldn't take it that far, but it points to something that I, I do have a concern. With, I mean, how, which do you, is, how did you deal with someone who Trumpian, says things like that? The, the Trumpian program is the right program that America needs. It's never going it's not going to ever get it now. So it's kind of because moved, of Trump. But no, no, not because of Trump, because the system. Look, again, in, in, uh, and also I would add, build, I would add the following. Build a president in speech who is, is Lincolnian in rhetoric, Reaganite in sort of. I'm not looking dignity. for perfection. I'm yeah. looking for someone who doesn't actively deceive or hallucinate reality on a daily, reasons. hourly no, basis. These are not, I don't think those are the main reasons why the system opposed Trump as har harshly as it did. Those were actually convenient excuses, not excuses, but convenient reasons to cite because they're much more respectable and, and popular than saying what, what was really on their minds, which is, we hate this agenda. This agenda strikes at the heart of our rule and our power and our wealth and our status and our prestige, and we have to bring him down. But let me get back to what you said about the well, I would, I would just like to have some important. relationship between reality and words in a president. How did I put this? I, the way I put it in 2016 was when people were saying, if only we could have this guy and his ideas and what he's running on and, and this enthusiasm with the 30,000 people showing up to these arenas and so on without all of the negatives. I said, I, I don't think you can, right? That is to say, it is not only his personality, but his personality is a kind of indispensable element. It goes too far to say that it was just a cult of personality and nobody supported him because of his agenda. But it also goes too far to suggest, as, or as a hope that some say, is, if only we could get rid of all the negatives and the bombast and the sort of, you know, circus ringmaster aspects of Trump and just be left with Trumpism, everything would be fine, right? This bodes in a way yeah, but I've a little seen, bit ill you can see, for the future. Look, you can see how demagogues are brilliant, and he's an absolutely brilliant demagogue. 
uh, I, I believe that from the get-go. I was convinced he'd be president from the minute he set forth down that elevator, uh, escalator. Um, uh, but to lie, to just invent stuff completely out of the blue, to say things happened when they didn't happen, to I mean, mischaracterize I don't know, a massively. to me would have, A, what a one re-election, <laughs> and B, to your earlier point, would have gotten, would have been able to get more done just by harnessing popular energy and but he didn't right and, and, he, he and directing preferred... it at um his at, ego you know, was so fragile him. michael that he couldn't accept any fact outside of his own head that in any way confronted or placed some sort of doubt upon the supreme goodness of his ability i mean this was a this was i mean come on it was it was pathological has anyone any president lied like this before? Has any let me ask this question? Has any president, having lost an election, said that they had actually won it by a landslide? Ever? Well, uh, no, never happened no, not before. That I, not that I know of. Because we um, haven't elected I mean, people well, who are the deranged. The one whose the one whose lies are clearly sort of for entertainment in a way, um, and easily transparent, or a real devious liar who's out to deceive you and the whole country, like Bill Clinton. When well, look, I I I'm not going to defend Bill Clinton, but when the lie is that our entire democracy is fraudulent in such a way that is believed, in such a way that people actually attempt by force to prevent the Constitution uh, being enforced through the counting of electoral votes, then we have not a harmless lie. We have an an extraordinary lie well, dedicated and targeted uh, at the very legitimacy of our system. I also think, I also think that goes much too far. I, I, I just don't have the same I, I'm a, interpretation of what happened on, on the 6th, that that was a legitimate, a, not, not forget legitimate, a serious, meaning the people went in there thinking, we're going to prevent this from happening and we're going to assure Trump a second term. I think most people went in there not knowing what they were there for or why they were there. Well, it just they became told a us. kind of self-perpetuating they told us you to know, stop the vote, to hang Mike Pence, and to attack any senator or congressperson they found. Well, but, but you know, who said that? And I also to Trump attack the cops, to kill them in, in some instances, to take shit, to take a shit on the, cap, on the statues. I mean, here I am thinking that there's... there's no, wait, the, wait, wait, come on. One, one Capitol police officer died that was attributed early on by the media to... He was supposedly attacked with a fire extinguisher by a protester. This has been very quietly retracted, I assume, because it's been investigated, found to be false or unsustainable. And now the, the, the megaphone, the propaganda arm of the regime just wants it silently dropped so that some people will remember, oh, yeah, that guy got killed by a protester. And as few as possible will remember the uh, actually we can't prove that but or even sustain I, it. I'm sorry, but I've seen with my own bare eyes the way in which uh, those rioters attacked and assaulted the cops. That Capitol Police officer, so of the people who died, one was a Capitol Police officer. The initial reporting was that he was attacked by a protester with a fire extinguisher. That has been not quite silently, but almost silently retracted. But you, let and me just ask you, you don't approve of that violence? The violence I that they showed? Uh, you, you, you're wait, a conservative. So what, what, you want, what you want mobs to invade the Capitol? I, I personally don't. But, you know, when Nancy, when, when they <laughs> invade, the, when they invade the state capitals for Democratic ends, Nancy Pelosi says it's a fantastic example of our democracy in action. 
right? The hypocrisy that pervades this country now and its media and its elites and its intellectuals and its politicians is so overwhelming. A person like me just can't take anything seriously anymore. It's just, it's, it's obvious and galling when Kamala Harris says in the middle of June, as 200 cities are burning, this needs to go on. There needs to be more, right? And Trump, for this one, gets impeached for so-called inciting a riot in which, uh, you know, the, the amount of damage, death, destruction, and mayhem is the barest fraction of what happened in this country from May to July. And Kamala Harris is lauded on the cover of every magazine. When I see hypocrisy at that rank level, I'll, I'll, I, I just check out. I mean, I just like, I'm so glad I have a job where I get to read old books and teach them to students. So I don't have to deal with this anymore. I can't stop any of it. There's nothing, and no one's going to listen to me or be persuaded by me, but I, I, it personally makes me sick. And I can tell you that this kind of level of just megaphone, 150 decibel, blatant, lying, hypocrit hypocritical propaganda blasted in my face does not persuade me of anything. It just makes me go, oh, okay, let's pick up a Greek book today. What are we going to do for, in class tomorrow? I totally understand how you feel. <laughs> Trust me. I mean, I was one of the few people that didn't in any way excuse. I lost my job over it uh, because I yeah. was not going to prettify what was going on last summer. Um, so I'm, I, I'm, I'm not going to disagree with you on that at all, but I am going to disagree with you on the, the salience of the violence to attempt to prevent a peaceful transfer of power that was not just distantly egged on by the president, but, uh, but uh, actually on the scene, whipping up the crowd to go and do it and actually urged them to go to the Capitol and make their voices heard and gave them what is an extraordinary justification for it. If it's true that the elites had rigged this election, they had every reason to do what they were doing. I mean, if, if honestly no. democracy had been taken from the public and from the people, why wouldn't they have, have but, engaged uh, in a revolution of that kind? Did you read right after, I don't remember the title, but right after it happened, Curtis Yarvin's thing on Substack? No, it I was, didn't know he was on Substack. I, I, yeah, he is. Uh, it was wonderful. I, it, 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 I thought it was extremely insightful. Um, he, uh, the, the line that sticks out for me was, uh, he says, you know, he's pointing to the guy with the hat, with the horns, sitting at the lectern in the Senate. And he says, you know, look, does this guy really think that by sitting there, he's taking over the government? And does the CNN reporter who's reporting it as if this is an actual attempt to take over the government, which one is more to blame for this extraordinary popular delusion? Most people had no chance, none whatsoever, zero, of preventing the outcome, the certification of Joe Biden as president or of doing anything else to the U.S. government. And all the media reporting this as if it were a serious attempt, as if it were like a real coup attempt that was we got through by the skin of our teeth, let's say the way Erdogan prevented a real coup attempt in, I think, 2013. I don't remember the exact year. The people reporting on that as if it were serious are, in a way, more to blame than the people in the Capitol, at least on the narrative no, side. Come, I no, don't, you don't want to go that far, Michael. I don't think anybody went into the Capitol. Uh, I, 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 read so, I read several eyewitness accounts of this and watched a lot of like YouTube and social media video. It, 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 it was just, it was, it was, aside from the property damage and the five deaths, one of whom shot by a police officer, a police officer who died for causes unknown but appears not to have been attacked, and then one person who got trampled, highly regrettable, and two people who just had medical emergencies the day of, 
as a friend of mine pointed out, look, if you're counting on, if these are the people you're counting on to overthrow the government and they're so out of shape that climbing the Capitol steps causes them to have a heart attack and die, you're probably not going to overthrow the government, right? I, I think Otherwise, you see people walking around and taking selfies and smiling and it didn't. It, it just didn't look like a coup attempt. To well, me it was in a mix. Respect. It was a mix of things. I'm. I'm. You're right that some of it was goofy in many ways. I mean, that dude with the horns. Um, uh, I found rather compelling, but not exactly terrifying. <laughs> um, and you know, now he's on his organic diet uh, in jail. Uh, it, I agree with you to some extent. However, however, I just trying to imagine if a mob had broken into the House of Commons to prevent the Queen's speech from the beginning of a new administration, or if, if mobs had entered democratic legislatures in Western capitals and, and used, and used, there was violence, it was force, uh, egged, well, on what, by, what? egged on by a politician, we wouldn't be putting this in quotation marks and minimizing what? it. We would there be was, horrified was, by it. The, the Times account of the damage, there was force in the sense that I, I guess one or two doors were forced and some windows were broken. Um, but lots and lots of people, perhaps the majority, uh, and, and, and I, th I think the total number of people who actually got inside the building was about 200, okay, um, were let in, had the doors held open for them by the Capitol Police. Now, I don't know why that would, and I don't think that happened in every case, but it, if, if you're there and you see, you know, that's called the people's yeah. house and the person with the badge and the uniform in authority is holding the door open and letting you in and you're not sophisticated in the ways of Washington and you know that there's a visitor center and so on and so forth, you're probably just going to walk in and think that you're, you can be there because the guy running the thing let me in. And some people are now being arrested and charged with federal crimes for that, right? Um, the, the FBI and the DOJ and fe federal law enforcement is cracking down uh, hard and swiftly and aggressively in a way they didn't, uh, that doesn't even, that exceeds by orders of magnitudes what they tried to do about the summer riots. It's another example well, again, of I just, spectacularly unequal justice in this country. I just, I, you get in this trap of constantly, what about them? What about them? Uh, and, and parsing what happened. Look, you don't have to go that far. You just have to say, as I think you would, this was unacceptable. It was disgusting. It was a shame for the United States. It, it made us look like a banana republic. Uh, it was fomented by a, a, a sitting president, uh, an attack, a physical attack upon the processes by which his successor would gain power. That an attack upon the peaceful transfer of power is an attack upon the heart of any democracy. And this is what this president urged be done. And we also know this president tried to get Republican state legislatures to change the right. certification which, of their results which, and leaning which, on, which, even leaning on people like Raffensperger in, Junior, in, in Georgia. I mean, this was an extraordinary... Getting, getting the legislate. if you want to talk about the Constitution, getting the state legislators to change the outcome is entirely constitutional. It is. That's what exactly what the Constitution says, how the process works. The, the, so my, they, they my should my ignore the with, votes and just do what their own party leader no, wanted them to do? My issue with it was, before you ask the state legislature to do that... The, the, because the, if the Constitution says that the state legislators ultimately um, have this authority to send elect, slates of electors. Now, doing so without investigating the underlying vote and demonstrating that there was something fraudulent or irregular about it was, A, imprudent at a minimum, and B, uh, certain not to succeed. 
which gets me back to a point almost where we started. I don't think, unlike you, that the president and his team were prepared for this, had a plan or had any shot of getting anything that they wanted done. And so he tried everything. Biggest he sin of commission in a way was to keep talking about this kind of stuff as if they could change something when their actions belied that. We don't know if they could have changed something. History is dynamic. We don't know where these things lead. When you when you invoke violence against your own vice president to prevent him. Okay, I, I don't uh, recall. Did what uh, what specific Trump did not say hang Mike Pence, right? He didn't. No, he but he singled out, out Mike Pence after even after he knew he was being targeted by this mob as someone who was letting down the cause and siding with the enemy. That's clearly what he did. And he mentioned him by name in a way that was utterly unnecessary. Uh, and definitely the chance of hang Mike Pence, fuck the cops, uh, all, the, all, the cha- all these hideous chants, which any self-respecting conservative would find appalling, it seems to me, uh, were actually encouraged by this, this grotesque person in the White House. I mean, I, I, I honestly don't understand how anyone who believes in the American Constitution or in liberal democracy could even begin to defend the way Trump behaved. Uh, since his election. I, I, my explanation is that he is, he's a crazy person. He, he genuinely still believes that he won by a landslide. He interprets the world as he wants it to be. He's never been told otherwise most of his life. And he will lie rather than concede reality to the nth degree. And we've seen this. And that's why I think characterologically, he's, uh, he's inst- instinctually incapable of operating in a liberal democracy. He can only operate in terms of a mobocracy. He's, he's a mafia boss in instinct. But, but, I mean, and look, he believes I, in the threats of violence and of intimidation to get his way. Uh, so he's the least effective authoritarian tyrant in the history of authoritarian tyrants. But the effectiveness he, is not the question. It's not, even, it's not even that he's ineffective. It's that he didn't try. In what, in what respect did he actually try to, like, you know, seize power uh, uh, in the way that tyrants do while he would he goes up to Congress and Mitch and, and Paul say, Mr. President, we don't think you should do this. You should do that. All right. I'll go along with you guys. I'm just um, saying that after he's lost an election to actually diligently go through and try and use his leverage as a Republican leader and as the president to to get state legislatures to corruptly reverse the results I, of an election okay. to get him if in it, there look, and to take it to the nth degree to do that. Uh, As I said earlier, if if he had done that effort with the state legislators on the basis of of real knowledge or evidence of fraudulent or irregularities, that would have been a different thing. So but you to believe do that his would motive... have required a team in advance to really dig in and look and find it. And so you're saying that, that his motive was irrelevant. His intent was irrelevant. I'm saying that. It, He's intent. You don't. If you you, you plot a murder and you fail to execute it properly, you are still responsible for that plot and for that attempt. Compare this to the famous story of 1960, right? In which it is said, and Nixon later in his memoirs, that he believed there was a good chance he won the 1960 election, but had it stolen from him by Richie Daly in Chicago and by the Johnson machine in Texas. And he declined. To, to even raise the possibility, and when friends of his came to him and said, "Dick, we're gonna we're gonna do our own independent investigation," he told them not to. Right. But he believed something. Right. Uh, and that's long been praised as statesmanlike. Yeah. Well, 
Okay, maybe. it was because that, conservatives that used to respect in, in, the decorum that, of a democracy. They, used, they understood the necessity for legitimacy on both sides of the democratic not, system. How does that not incentivize fraud? If I know that I can get away with it, and that the and that well, the but, guy who got it stolen from will be accused of attacking democracy. If well, he in objects, this case, in this, I have no incentive not to cheat because I can just say you're undermining our democracy if you object. You could argue that, or you could also argue that the, the margins in both those cases was extremely small. As I recall, I think it was 0.5% in Chicago. I can't remember the exact things. But he yeah. understood that actually there are more important things, that effectively that, that it had been a tie, but the rules made sure that he, he actually uh, lost. And he, rather than shake the system to its core over a small issue, he decided to wait his turn to defend the system and to come back later, which he did successfully. That is a democratic mindset. The mindset of Trump is not democratic at all. It is never to wait for the future. It is never to give the other side its, its share in power. It is to, to delegitimize the other party entirely. And surely that's worrying for you. I mean, what we see now in the Republican Party is it's, it's still an insistence that they won the landslide, according to most polling of most Republican members as a, 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 an attachment to Trump or indeed to his offspring, because after all, this is all about the issues, isn't it? It's not actually about Trump's monarchical or, or despotic or cult of personality. Um, and who will not accept really the legitimacy of the other party in the system. How long Which can party? a liberal democracy oh, now, do now, that? Now, come on. Which party doesn't accept the legitimacy of the other party in the system, right? The Democrats are saying essentially everyone who voted for Trump needs to be deprogrammed. We need to go through a process of some kind of denazification. We've had no less than a former Secretary of Labor call for a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. The rhetoric from the left has gotten uh, out of hand at delegitimization of 75 million Trump voters that who sh that they basically say should have no say in our politics anymore. Nils Gilman, a man who incidentally, if your listeners are interested, called for my death on Twitter, was not reprimanded in any way by at Jack or anyone, was in fact quite lauded for calling for my literal death by firing squad, has said that all of these people need to be, he uses the word, which comes up in Machiavelli a lot in a slightly different context, extirpated from American politics. Who is really delegitimizing the other side? Well, I mean, the, give me obviously, if you, if you look at the extremes of both sides, and unfortunately more and more people in both sides are on the extremes. Nils Gilman uh, and Robert Reich and, and, and what's his name? Eugene get, Robinson you're not going to get me Post. to defend These are those not people. extremes. These are mainstream voices, powerful mainstream voices backed by the most powerful institutions in our state. Well, let's just take an obvious direct comparison if we're going to play who's, who's, on, who's, who's on first here. Uh, Hillary Clinton in 2016 won the popular vote and, and mm -hmm. lost the Electoral College narrowly. Uh, and she mm -hmm. did rhetorically claim that it had been stolen from her. She blamed the Russians. She blamed all sorts of things. And, and I took that on at the time, and I, I, I disagree with it at the time. But did she show up to the inauguration? Yes, she fucking well did. Uh, she went through the motions of supporting the system. Did Trump? No, he did not well, accept his you know, loss. You know full and she well conceded. Nobody, she conceded the morning after. Nobody wanted Trump at that inauguration. And she, she. Right? No, hold on a second. She conceded the morning after the election. By January sixth, Trump was not just not conceding; he was emboldening a mob to prevent the process of the transfer of power. You that is a clear difference. 
in kind, okay. not even in degree. Do you, do you, do you, okay, I, I can ask this as a question. Uh, I'll just tell you what I think. Had there been any kind of irregularities in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania comparable to what we saw in uh, Georgia, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Arizona, this time, Hillary Clinton would not have gone gently into that good night. She well, would have I litigated just, it I, if she had a shot. Well, if they there did was anything to I'm hang sorry, they on. litigated it and they lost. I'm sorry. They, well, they... And 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 in 2016, they had no, every they no. I'm talking she, about 2020. Right. I'm talking about 2020. Um, and uh, a, a, a losing candidate has every right to pursue completely normal, legal, legitimate inquiries into whether there was any irregularities in the voting and to see if it affected the results. No one, I don't think, really objected to that. Um, uh, what they objected my, to was that my, my point is, if there had been something real for her to cling to in 2016, she would have fought like hell to get that outcome overturned. There wasn't; those irregularities didn't exist in 2016, and they did in 2020. Well, you're I, right; they that, sued I, I and think they you're lost. Wrong. To I me, think you're wrong. To me, and a half uh, a, a, a subcompetent slapdash team put together at the last minute with. Uh, dubious support from the White House in the campaign was always going to lose. So the fact of the loss doesn't, to me, prove that their case was wrong. It's like it's like sending a high school football team to go play against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Of course it's going to lose, right? Doesn't mean that, you know, uh, whatever claim they were making beforehand is definitely wrong. And I put this at the feet of the president. If he thought he had a real case, he should have made a much more serious effort to investigate that case. And he didn't. You're, you're right about this. He talked a big game about changing the outcome. And this is what happened. And I won in a landslide. And he, he didn't put any of the kind of effort or resources toward an actual investigation or effort to which find is, out what happened. Or which surely, happened. Michael, is a kind of coda for the whole administration. He talked these insane amount of things, had no interest or ability in actually learning how to get things done and, and chose priorities that were actually not his own priorities in the campaign. I mean, I, there's always a what if. If he had come in and said, first off, a tax cut for the working classes and a big new family credit and infrastructure spending, uh, I think he would have been fucking gold by the fall. I really do. And, uh, but he didn't do those things. And I think you have to sort of figure out, it seems to me, why you supported a person who was unable to walk the walk, even though he, he, he inflamed talk to a level of expectation and of drama that because no previous it, president. It's, I, because if it's, a, it's a binary choice between someone whose uh, agenda I agree with, who's going to obviously have lots of problems implementing it, or someone whose agenda I entirely agree with, disagree with. I, I, you know, I'm, well, in my I, case, I, I made the decision that I could not possibly allow this crazy person anywhere near a position of responsibility. And I, and four, five years later, I think I've been completely vindicated in that respect. This man is a danger, a, a crazy person, unhinged, deranged, anti-democratic, authoritarian. All the things no. we said were Defin true. I mean, cer certainly not anti-democratic and authoritarian. He didn't even attempt to govern like an authoritarian, much less anti-democratically. Okay. And uh, uh, going back some of the weird, some of the strongest things said about Trump at the time in 2015, 2016, I think it, we have to be fair or we should be fair and, and admit that they didn't come true. You know, people were talking about Trump and the nuclear codes, like he was going to just randomly nuke other countries because he's, first of all, given if you know anything about nuclear command and control, you'd know that that can't happen. But it's also a, a, a horrible calumny against the man. Not only did he not attempt that, 
He's the first president in decades not to get us into a new war and to actually lessen, if not end, our involvement in existing wars. So some of the things said about his his temperament and his mental state um, back in the original campaign as a way of asserting that he shouldn't be anywhere near power, I think we need to admit we're all we're we're wrong and terribly unfair to him. Let's let's um let's finish up actually. Um, okay. Uh, because I wanted to talk about um wokeness really and uh, areas in which you and I I think are in pretty close alignment in terms of the defense of the whole defense of a liberal learning really the whole defense of uh the very epistemology of the west and the threat that we've that we're confronting from the postmodernists and the neo-racists as I would I think they're best called yeah isn't it a paradox that this movement reached its peak of power under Donald Trump? Uh, my read is a little different. Okay. Um, I think this movement begins in the 60s, Yeah, uh, has already taken over the universities by the time I go off to college in 1987, but is walled off there from the surrounding society. And it, it creeps outward. You know, I spent a decade in, in corporate America in big companies, and I could see it creeping into the business community, but somewhat slowly. So from around 2005 to 2016, 2017, when I left. Um, when the dam broke, though, uh, it seems to me was Obama's second term. Is when it, the, acceler- the, the, the pedal really went down to the floor. Um, there was a kind of, uh, you know, this is when, lots of stuff starts happening in, in the crazy woke arena. And I, I think Trump probably accelerated it, but there's two things going on here. One, you don't get Trump probably without, or at least it certainly contributes to your getting Trump that Obama's second term was so insane on the woke cultural leftism so that you get precisely that cultural rea- reaction that you brought up earlier from mm-hmm. the heartland. And uh, having gotten that, you know, it was not obvious that Trump was going to win. And then once he wins, I do think the reaction to his win accelerates the wokeness substantially, where people say, oh, my God, we, you know, uh, we didn't realize that there's this, you know, this many wreckers <laughs> out there, right. that there's this there's this much uh, evil opposition out there. And now we're just going to have to, you know, imp- uh, continue, you know, increase the beatings until morale. Improves. There was almost a thrill at the discovery um, that, that actually the, that the white supremacists had returned and are controlling the society but see i mean that to me is just risable you know i well, i agree I, it, it, I think you, it's they, a, they want it's you to insane. say they, they want to put you in a position where um you either deny every instance of white supremacy which we all know is impossible because there must be some out there somewhere right um or you're admitting I think like, well, no, look, the vast majority of Trump's support was really what people said it was. It was like my community has been slowly dying for 20 or 30 years. My factory closed. My hospital is, you know, half as effective as it used to be. My husband hasn't had a job and my son is on he died of an OD or whatever. Uh, And none of this has anything to do with the sinister motives that the woke people attribute it to. Um, And in fact, you know, this is not an original thought, but the more the the less sort of. the less racism essentially there is in society, the more the commanding heights of society talk about it. Right? Yeah. Yes. 2021 has got to be the least racist year in American history by far. I, I just I can't think of another, you know, I mean, and yet we're more obsessed with it than we were in 2001, 1991, 
and probably 1971. Yeah, the need to be the savior of society it, it seems to to endure regardless of the state of the society itself. And it, insofar as improvements happen, they simply expose how we've got so much further to go. And uh, you never hear someone say, well, we actually don't have that much more to go. We're basically here. I mean, we've, we've won a lot of arguments. When I think of the gay movement, for example, I'm like, well, what, what on earth do you want now? We got it all. It's a slam dunk. Uh, and you're really arguing that we're, as, as, as the, the gay rights lobby sends me emails telling me that the gay people have never experienced this onslaught of hostility before. I'm like, are you out of your fucking minds? I mean, <laughs> were you even alive 10 years ago? Uh, and there's that extraordinary distortion. The, my question, though, Michael, is what on earth can we do about this? It, is, it, is, it has become so instinctual that people now who didn't feel or act this way like 10 years ago now will look at people on the street around them and immediately identify them by their race, by their sex, by their gender, by their orientation, by, and, and understand them then entirely within this neo-Marxist construct of society and oppression. And that's something, because it's triggered by visual signals of race and gender, is very hard to get rid of because it, it, it's with the grain of human nature. It's with the grain of racism, essentially, which is why I think of it as a kind of neo-racism. And the ability to get rid of that seems to me to be extremely rare. And I, I, I want to know what you think we can do Apart from just um, explaining why we think this is wrong and why we think this is bad. Well, yeah, as to the latter, you know, in a sense, there have been scads of conservative intellectuals and liberal intellectuals. I mean, I cited my book, Arthur Schlesinger Jr., who yeah. wrote a, book, a little book in 1991 called Disuniting I remember that book. A, I reviewed it, actually. A, yeah. An impeccably credentialed liberal historian. Not a far leftist, but by no means any kind of conservative. I mean, he spent sort of the prime decades of his life, you know, battling with the likes of William Buckley and mm -hmm. others mm -hmm. to his right, um, saying, listen, he spotted exactly what I saw when I went off to college. And I was in college when the book came out. And he said, this deliberate focus on all of these divisive demographic categories that are, you know, perfectly fine and wonderful to an extent as they explain your identity. But if we let them, if we, if we, let them become the end-all be-all of who we are and, and slice and dice us into groups, we'll tear the country apart. The book was very well received when it came out, hmm. um, kind of thing that was seemed like conventional wisdom in 1991. Mm -hmm. uh, nobody talks about that book anymore, but I, I you know- I think I was, it's well worth a look at. Again, I picked it up yeah, I looked uh, at a year it. ago. Yeah, it, it, it's, I, I, it's prophetic. I would double dare, well, it, it, to, um, to the extent that I, I have um, affection for any of my friends at uh, a mainstream university, I would say to them, do not assign that book <laughs> because your career will be over as soon as one student gets a hold of it and, and you are known to have been the person who made them read it. So my, that's just a long way of saying, look, I think all the arguments have been made and are out there and they've been made brilliantly by brilliant people, you know, not just not just Schlesinger on the center left, but people like Thomas Sowell and Shelby Steele on the center right. Right. These arguments are out there. If they were going to work at persuading people, they kind of would have worked by now. So my the, my pessimistic side comes out when I say, I don't know what to do. I do think, though, the, the glimmer of hope is that this whole horrible system uh, that we're in right now, this kind of insane woke religion is so obviously anti nature 
anti-human nature that it cannot last. It will blow itself out. Yeah. What it takes with it, as it, how long that takes and what the collateral damage is, I do not know. So my personal focus is just on, you know, I'm waiting for them to come and say, you can't teach Plato anymore. Well, I mean, I'm at a conservative college, so they'll tell them to buzz off. But, you know, when they start, you know, trying, to, they're, they're, they're trying to trash the canon now. They've been trying that since I was in college, but it's getting, you know, the, 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 the profession of classics is denouncing the classics. I know. Like, really? Um, so I just want to make sure that, you know, I, I do my little part to keep this alive in students' minds. Like, you need to read this and be challenged by it and see the wisdom here but, and also see things that you're definitely going to disagree with and try to think through why you disagree with it, right? And Yeah, you know, and I, I also think that all you can do. its vulnerability is it's also tedious. I mean, <clears throat> first of all, it's constantly repeating itself and just applying the same rubric to every single topic under the sun. Uh, yeah. And secondly, in the end, it's much more interesting to understand things different than you, than yourself. And eventually people are going to get bored. I mean, kids are going to get bored. People are going to have that glazed look that I get every time I try and read the New York Times op-ed page, which is like, how do I distinguish between each of these articles? They're all exactly the same, except now they have little pictures of the, of the columnists just so to prove to the readers for the first time they have the right sort of skin color, gender demographic diversity well, but and, every and, single uh, one know, is I the same argument there, there there may be some market effects too you know mm -hmm. when corporate america the entertainment industry professional sports all went super woke i mean they mm. just it had obviously already kind of been there before but they jumped into the deep end of the woke pool kind of seemingly all of a sudden in the summer of 2020 everybody saw their ratings go down Right. Um, yeah, I, I, I just wonder if there won't be people who just start to tune out and go, you know what? I I used to like to watch movies because they were escapism. But if I'm going to get preached at by zealots, I don't care. I, I can't go to a game anymore without this just becoming the dominant topic. I can't go to a restaurant without you know potentially having a bullhorn mob surround my table and shout at me about justice. It's like I, I could I could see a further kind of hunkering down mm. uh, and a retreat. Which, you know, wouldn't necessarily, it's not great, but it's also there's an upside uh, if people start voting with their feet and their wallets, just, just checking out of some of this stuff. Or even looking at the media, um, you know, the emergence of something like Substack, because so many of us are being purged uh, from these woke institutions, that it's, it, and it's doing really well. And people actually enjoy it. I mean, I... I don't think without wokeness, I, I read today a rather wonderful screed by Matt Tybee about uh, Herbert Marcuse, which I recommend. It's on Substack. It's, yeah, no, a friend of mine sent that to me yesterday. I read it yesterday. It's, it's great. It's pretty great. And it's pretty on. I had to read that that bugger in, in, in grad school as well. Um, but there's nothing like reading Marcuse to talk you out of believing anything he says. Uh, it's like trying to read Judith Butler. It's, it's, it's just impenetrable, deliberately so and sinister underneath. Um, well, in all of that, I really wish you the best. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of your scholarship and of your mind, and I'm also very grateful for you to come on and, and debate some of this stuff, very frankly, in a way that it's very hard to get other people to do these days. I mean, they just don't want to have some kind of... Uh, debate some kind of intellectual to and fro on these issues, uh, especially around the cultural issues. It's, 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 it's deeply depressing to me. Um, I mean, I, 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 
I'm better situated than most. Um, I, you know, I don't want to like taunt people or tempt fate, but I'd be somewhat hard to cancel. Not impossible, maybe, but somewhat hard to cancel. And so, you know, I don't have to, if I were, if I were, you know, at at a completely different institution or somewhere, Mm. um, you know, you know, your teacher and my friend Harvey Mansfield famously wrote a sent a tell. This shows how long ago it was uh, that when he was granted tenure at Harvard, he sent a a telegram to Leo Strauss <laughs> saying, "Now we run up the Jolly Roger." Right? You know, <laughs> I'm sure you know that story. I don't actually. Um, that's funny, funny. Yeah, like 1965. I don't even remember when. Um, but you know, I, I wouldn't advise anybody to do that at a mainstream university today. But beyond that, I, I you know. It, um, I'm just trying to do do my own scholarship and and, and my own stuff. Well, for um, me, my hope is that you walk into a lecture and you hear someone like Harvey, and you suddenly ears perk up and you think, oh, this person's kind of interesting and challenging, and he's not going to give me an A because because it's yeah, somehow my he doesn't do that. dessert because he doesn't do that, <laughs> and uh, and it has this kind of countercultural mystique, uh, and I think. I do think that's exploitable more than just the sort of extremes on the dark web or the fringes of the web when there are some ugly forces exploiting some of these frustrations. More of us who are more settled in the mainstream should be voicing those frustrations so that those people don't, um, yeah. especially on things like immigration, it seems to me, where, the, where uh, you know, in the words of David Frum, if, if liberals don't enforce borders, fascists will. And... and and I think the importance of standing up for those things within the liberal, when I say liberal, you know, I mean classical liberal discourse, uh, is, is incredibly important. That's why I'm still doing this um, after all these years. Um, well, this has been huge fun, Michael. I, I appreciate it. Um, I hope one day you will, you, will, you will recognize how bad your mistake was. <laughs> uh, I'm just teasing. Um, <laughs> remember, I mean, people need to remember that, that the article for which I've been most attacked, the Flight 93 election, doesn't say if we vote for Trump, we solve all of our problems. It basically says um, this is worth a try and it may not work out. Yeah, and it didn't. <laughs> okay. I would say it, it it partly worked out, and then we have to see what the future holds. But you know, right now, it's it certainly um, you know your friend and mine, Charles, and my teacher in this case, and Mansfield student Charles Kessler, um, he does have a point when he says, "Look, you have to divide the Trump presidency into essentially up to November third and after, and the after those eight weeks or so, however long after, really did a great deal to undermine." everything that happened before i don't i'm not quite as as gloomy on it as charles is in that sense but he 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 definitely has a point he does and in my view of course he's just exposed what was underneath all along a fundamentally uh illiberal and anti-democratic uh cult but we'll have to agree to disagree on that um which is part of the point of liberal democracy thank you michael for coming on um really appreciate it and talk to you soon thank you all right bye